You're listening to the Valley Labor Report with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison. The time has come for America to hear the truth. We are going to stand with them, and not only are we going to fight for their rights, but we're going to stand up for our rights here in our state, in our homes, and in our community. United States of America is not going to be decided in the courts. It's not going to be decided in Congress. It's not going to be decided on talk radio, and it sure is not going to be decided on Fox News. Hello, Tennessee Valley. This is the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison, here with my co-host and fellow agitator Adam Keller, and we are broadcasting live online and on the radio from the heart of the Tennessee Valley, the Spice Radio Studio in Huntsville, Alabama. We've got a packed show today. AFGE National President Reverend Everett Kelly is joining us to talk about the top accomplishments for the union in 2021. Uh, Peter Coffin is an internet politics person who thinks it is okay to buy struck goods. We're going to be talking about uh, to him about that and asking him why. And finally, we've got an educator from the Chicago Teachers Union talking to us about the vicious attacks against teachers in the media and more on today's Valley Labor Report. Uh, so if you want to be a part of the program today, we've got a phone number. You can call or text 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. You can also leave a voicemail throughout the week, um, and we may or may not play that on the show. Um, If you haven't gotten enough of us by the time that we wrap here on the radio, or if you just want to see what we're up to throughout the week, then you can find us online. Um, We are all over the internet. We're on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, wherever you get your podcasts, all at The Valley Labor Report. Uh, And just a reminder, your support helps keep us on the radio. Our single largest source of revenue is our listeners. Uh, We do not get any sponsorship that is larger than our listeners contribute to the show. So if you want to become a sustaining member of the program or donate uh, to our one-time phone raiser, then you can go to unionly.io slash o slash tvlr. That is unionly.io slash o slash tvlr. We are also on Patreon at uh, patreon.com slash thevalleylaborreport. And uh, whatever makes you happy, you can support us in either of those places. Doesn't money still get money gets to us either way. If you're a member of a union, uh, you should get your local to sponsor this show. We've got several uh, local unions that are sponsors of the program, and that helps us out quite a bit. So you can reach out to us on our uh, social media for more information on that. Um, Our first guest is going to be the American Federation of Government Employees National President, Reverend Everett Kelly. Have we got him on the Zoom yet? Uh, Not yet. I don't see Everett on the line yet. So we are going to really quick go ahead and take a break, uh, 
have a listen to a few words from some of our sponsors while we get our first guest on the line. Um, He is the president of the largest federal employees union, representing over 700,000 workers in the federal service. Uh, And we are going to be talking to him about the top 10 victories for AFGE in 2021 right after this break. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison. Support for this program also comes from the Ironworkers Local 477. So if you are looking for contractors with lower than average EMR and TRIR, uh, they tell me that if you need to know what those mean, then you will. Uh, or if you need to supplement a workforce at any level for any amount of time, short or long term, if you need ironworkers that come trained and certified at no extra cost, or if you need workers from superintendent down to general laborer, and you're looking to start work on a project or you're unhappy with your current contractor situation, you need to call my friend Jeb Miles with the Ironworkers Local 477. They only work with the best in the business, vetted contractors, and can do all kinds of jobs from roofing to steel and bridge erection, from welding to heavy rigging, from structural repairs to machinery alignment, and much more. They supply manpower on four of the five largest projects in North Alabama, so you know they're legit. If you need good quality, safe, efficient, diligent, and knowledgeable workers on your job, then you need the Ironworkers Local 477. Call Jeb Miles at 256-383-3334 or via email at local477 at bellsouth.net and make sure you tell them that you heard about them on the Valley Labor Report. Work sucks, we know, but you can make it better by organizing with your fellow workers. For more information, call or text the Huntsville Industrial Workers of the World at 256-651-6707. Support for the Valley Labor Report comes from the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers Union. Learn more by visiting www.ifpte.org. Support for this program comes from the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 136, out of Central Alabama. Learn more at IBEW136.org. The attorneys of Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs are proud to represent working people in Alabama and across the Southeast. They have over 100 years of experience representing injured workers in workers' compensation, personal injury, and disability claims. Let their attorneys help you when you get injured on the job. You can find them at www.mtandj.com or 855-617-9333. Let Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs help you when you get injured on the job. Again, the website is www.mtandj.com or the phone number 855-617-9333. No representation is made that the quality of legal services is greater than the quality of legal services from other law firms. There's a lot of talk about a shortage of workers, but that's not the case with IBW558. We have provided our customers over 3,000 workers and performed over 3 million man hours in a pandemic year. With 8,000 OJT hours, 900 classroom hours, OSHA 30, and a state license, our members receive the equivalent of a master's degree. That's what makes IBW558 the right choice for your electrical needs. 
Look us up at Facebook or at www.558.org. North Alabama DSA is looking for folks to work for a better North Alabama. They prioritize mutual aid, municipal activism, and union solidarity. Contact them on social media or dsanorthalabama at gmail for more information. IBW558 is like a great football team. You've got to have the aptitude, skills, and knowledge to outperform the competition. If you're a non-union electrician, now is the perfect time to get off the sideline and join our team. We have the absolute best wages and benefit package in North Alabama and Southern Tennessee. It's because our team stands together, bargains together, and our families benefit from it. With immediate openings, you have the opportunity to see why the IBW is the right choice. The Valley Labor Report. All right, everybody. Welcome back. My name is Jacob Morrison here with my co-host, Adam Keller. And uh, our first guest, like I said, is going to be Reverend Everett Kelly, the president of the American Federation of Government Employees. And uh, we're going to be talking about the top 10 victories uh, from the American Federation of Government Employees in 2021. Uh, He is the national president of the union, and he's an Alabama native, actually. He was president of the local union at Anniston Army Depot, the first black president of that local. Um, We spoke to him about becoming the first black president of the local union at Anniston Army Depot last year in June, I believe it was, or, or Man, was it almost two years ago? It was June of 2020 that we spoke to him about that um, and his journey uh, to the presidency of his local union and now to the presidency of the National Union is very, very cool. And he was and I actually didn't realize this until I was reading his bio for this interview Um, as president of the local union at Anniston Army Depot, his membership uh, more than doubled. Like from 1,200 to 2,600 members at the Anniston Army Depot, which is very impressive, and uh, that was um, that was still uh, uh, and that was like less than 10 years as local president. So that's very impressive. He was also national vice president for District Five, and nearly the same thing happened. Membership grew from 38,000 to over 51,000 in just seven years. That's so, very impressive. Yeah. <laughs> very impressive. Yeah. And it's really, it's very cool to know that we have someone who's pretty close to us uh, who is in a position of national leadership. It's, Absol- always, it's always great to have some of our hometown boys and girls up there in charge. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, and this is, and District 5 is the South. You know, I mean, that's that's uh, Alabama, Georgia, Florida, Puerto Rico, Mississippi, Tennessee is is uh, and, and maybe South Carolina. I mean, these are not union friendly states. And to get in just seven years, like 13,000 uh, new members as national vice. I mean, that is that's really, really, really cool. Um, it is. And I think uh, President Kelly may be on the line now. All right. Brother Kelly, can you hear us? I can hear you good. How, how are you today? Oh, man, I am doing great. Uh, so thank you so much for taking the time uh, to talk to us today. Uh, president Kelly has been president of the National Union since 2020, and he's a very busy person. So, Brother Kelly, I appreciate uh, you talking to us. Jacob, the, the, the pleasure is mine, and it's good to 
uh, always talk to you and, and, and bring my ties back to Alabama. Uh, it's just so good to hear you this morning. Absolutely. I, I, that's, uh, it, it is very, very cool that we've got somebody from Alabama as president of the National Union. And um, I, I, I'm going to have to talk to you sometime, maybe off the line or, or on the show, about the growth that you saw in membership at Anniston and in District 5. What would you account like that success to really quickly before we talk about uh, uh, 2021? Well, you know, Jacob, that, that is just one of the things that interests me, and that is uh, seeing growth. Um, you know, I went out every single day as a local president in 1945 at Anderson. I went out every single day uh, asking someone to join the union, right, because I understood the mm-hmm. urgency of it. I understood the importance of it. And so every day I set out to talk to people about the union every single day. And so it was a constant recruitment uh, for me. And not only for me, but we had a, a, a organizing team that we went out to do. You know, we did it on a monthly basis. We continued, you know, massive recruitment efforts and those types of things. And uh, the result is, you know, we had great uh, growth. You know, the same thing with the uh, district. You know, I, I, I had uh, a lot of support throughout uh, the district as it relates to the local president. They were all engaged in um, and growing the union, we had competition. You know, people love a uh, good friendly competition, but we had some mm-hmm. competition. People, uh, uh, um, you know, competed. We had what we called uh, our champ program, where we did our organizing um, um, trophies. You know, at the end of every year, uh, you know, we did it for ages, various agencies, and it was just a good to that we use to uh, enhance our organizing abilities and, you know, make it fun all at the same time. Well, I think it it clearly paid off. So kudos to you, and um, I have appreciated your leadership at the national level. And and so everybody, I, I believe, listening to the show knows that I'm a member of AFGE, and uh, I'm a good union member, so when my union sends out newsletters, I try to read it. And um, and by the way, our union's, com, our union's comms team is really, really good. Uh, Andrew <laughs> Huddleston is the communications director, and they received an award for like best Elonic, electronic communications and infographics from like a, uh, a labor communications organization. And so they make it easy to, to read the newsletters. But um, near the end of December, they sent out a roundup of sorts that I thought would be a really good topic to talk to you about um, because it contains some pretty big wins for federal employees. So the first off, I guess I would be interested in what you think is the biggest win if you had to pick just one from 2021 for our union. Wow, there are so many. Um, but I think that, you know, the biggest win, if I, if, if I look at what AFGE uh, gained overall, okay, I, I would have mm-hmm. to say that the fact that uh, the TSA, who has uh, been considered second-class employees, if you will, for over 20 years, uh, they have not had adequate pay, uh, they have not had uh, equal bargaining rights, uh, but to get a determination from the secretary that says, you know, we heard you, right? And we're going mm-hmm. to grant uh, to the TSA workers, you know, uh, some form of uh, pay 
uh, reclassification that would look like a GS pay scale uh, that were going to give them, you know, MSP appeal rights and other uh, due process rights. To me, that was the major victory because it says that, you know, people are interested in all federal employees being equal and that they should be paid adequately. They should be treated with fairness and dignity on the job. So I, I think, you know, all of them are, are important. But if I if I have to celebrate at least one victory, that will be one that I would really celebrate and bring to the top. I think a group of workers getting uh, collective bargaining rights is a, is a pretty big win. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, that that makes some that makes sense to me. Um, let, let's go through some of these on the list then. Uh, one of these from the from the newsletter said that uh, presidential candidate Joe Biden had promised AFGE that he would repeal Trump's May 2018 anti-worker executive orders that a- that were aimed at eliminating collective bargaining, due process, and workplace representation rights for federal employees, and he did that uh, within three days of taking office, which was that that was that was a big deal. So, talk to us. What were those executive orders and what kind of damage did they do to the federal workforce to help us understand like how big a win it is to get rid of those? Okay. You know, and, and again, you know, I, you asked me to choose one that I thought rose to the top. This was also at the top, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, because as you know, uh, in May of 2018, under the uh, direction of then President Donald Trump, uh, there were three executive orders issued, right? Those executive orders were uh, designed to bust unions. It was designed to deteriorate union growth, um, designed to kill the presence of the union on the work site. It, it, it took away uh, the right for uh, unions to be present at the work site in, a, in retrospect by saying that you could not have an office space, you know, unless you paid top price to rent the space where, you know, mm-hmm. uh, also it, it, it eliminated uh, 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 a lot of our bargaining initiative. It gutted our contract, right? Uh, and, and and as a result of that, you know, members began to feel like the union had no power, right? And so mm. uh, they began to say, well, what's the, what's the use in paying union dues? And we began to see a decline in membership as a result of that. Had uh, mm-hmm. President Biden not uh, came in and repealed those uh, executive orders, you know, then we could uh, still be witnessing uh, that type of decline. But uh, we're grateful uh, that uh, President Biden did issue those executive orders that repeal uh, the uh, Trump anti-union executive orders because uh, they was completely designed to deteriorate uh, our union, to minimize our ability to negotiate because you know, it, it would only give like uh, so many rights to the union and so many rights were taken away. What we're seeing right now is a lot of the contracts that we uh, negotiated over the last four years, you see a lot of these anti-union uh, uh, um, tactics that were used in these contracts. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's still detrimental. And we having a hard time getting rid of some of, uh, of that bargaining language that's in some of these contracts. Right, right, and and the you know a lot of these things are are um, 
they were orders that that even overstepped what some private sector unions have to deal with. Like, I mean, it's not uncommon that unions have some office space at the work site to do workplace representation. That's not an uncommon thing. And because federal employees' uh, salary and benefits are set at the congressional level, there are that you know taking away some of the few things that we can bargain over with our employers is uh that is detrimental to you know to uh quality of the workplace but also the ability of the union to represent its members and 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 that's something that you know private sector workers don't uh they don't have to deal with and you know, when out because our salary and our benefits are set at the congressional level, it can kind of obscure the importance of having uh, representation that is by and for and of federal employees. And and so, you know, it's important because we need a national organization to represent us to our congressional representatives. But we do also need to be able to fight at the local level for some of these more, um, you know, more local level issues. And, and so we're sending that executive order is, is definitely very important. Yes. Uh, the next one that I wanted to ask you about was that, uh, that president Biden fired the Trump appointed 10 positions on the federal service impasse panel. And he replaced them. Uh, the newsletter said with highly qualified individuals who will rebuild the reputation of the embattled panel. Um, the, you say that the FSIP had been used by the Trump administration to to impose anti-worker union-busting agency contract proposals on federal workers, and AFGE had called on the Biden administration to remove those members and appoint new ones. Can you tell us what the Federal Service Impasses panel is and why it's important? Okay, the the um, the Federal Service Impasse panel is the entity that will hear and adjudicate um, issues where there is negotiability conflicts between the agency and management, um, agency and union, okay? Uh, for instance, um, we are at impasse. We can't, we can't move forward, and there is an entity that make a decision as to if the union's position is correct or if the manager's position is correct. And what we were seeing was, you know, years of, 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 of language that have been uh, determined by the Federal Service Impasse Panel being uh, re-looked, right? Being re-evaluated and, and new language coming out of, you know, this new panel, uh, disregarding the years of precedence that have been set. You know, and it was all done, you know, to the detriment of the union, uh, saying that, OK, uh, for instance, you know, that was one in particular where we, we was talking about um, and we were concerned about uh, whether or not, um, I, I guess we would say dues deduction was 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 proper uh, for the agency to mm -hmm. deduct union dues. Right. Uh, in our mm -hmm. opinion, you know, this. Uh, uh, was a tactic to uh, destroy the union, right? Because if we can't mm -hmm. let dues, you know, you know. And so the panel uh, decided something that was contrary to what had been decided, you know, for years, right? So that's why it's so important that we have people on the panel that at least will look at current law and base their opinions and their decisions on law rather than, you know, a political agenda. 
Right, right. And so that that's definitely, you know, that's definitely a win to have the whole panel uh, replaced with people who are going to be looking at at precedent, at policy and not just trying to undermine workers and their representatives basically at every right, turn. Right. Right. Um, and the last one that I wanted to talk about, I've, uh, like I said, there were there are ten, and uh, we have included the article in the description of our YouTube channel. It's uh, AFGE's top ten victories from twenty twenty one. I wanted to ask you about this last one before we wrap, and then um, wrap with an eye towards twenty twenty two. But this one here, I thought was I thought was important, and and like the Federal Service Impasse Panel, there are a lot of people that aren't going to know like what it is. And so that's President Biden nominated two important positions for the Federal Labor Relations Authority, bringing an end to the Trump-appointed majority at the Labor Board. He nominated Susan Sue Grunman as a member of the three-member FLRA and Kurt Rumsfeld as FLRA general counsel. And he also nominated Ernest Dubester, who serves as the chair of the FLRA for a second term in the same position. Uh, The general counsel position was left vacant the entire Trump administration, which I did not realize, uh, leaving federal workers in limbo since the FLRA could not prosecute agencies that violated their own policies and labor laws. While while the union was encouraged by the president's choices, their nominations are still pending in the Senate. So what is the FLRA and what have... Like what have 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 federal federal workers dealt with materially as a result of the Trump majority and the general counsel not being appointed? Okay, well, Federal Labor Relations Authority, you know, some know as you know the FLRA, right? Uh, they uh, are protecting the rights and uh, facilitate stable relationships among federal agencies, the labor organization, and uh, employees while advancing an effective and efficient government uh, through the administration, right? Uh, it's so important that we have uh, a full house there because just like you said, you know, we had all of these cases sitting in limbo because we didn't have a uh, general counsel. We didn't have a full panel. Okay. Now we have uh, been asking uh, that this, these positions, rather the 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 uh, Susan Grunman and, and, and the general counsel be uh, confirmed, and 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 it takes a Senate confirmation in order for this to happen. You know, we're saying that we think they are the right people. Okay, at least the Grunman and uh, the general counsel. I forget his name, uh, um, but but we think they are the right people because we believe that we are ready for someone to take the hymns here uh, that will not be about the politics, but will be about making sure that the uh, uh, decisions that come down are based on law, based on practice, and not politics. That's what we got to have. In order to have a successful labor management uh, relations, you know, we have to have that. And so we're looking forward and hoping that this, uh, these people are confirmed, you know, very soon. Why have they not been accepted by the Senate yet? My understanding is that the Senate has been uh, running full speed ahead with judicial nomination nominations. Why do you think these are being held up? You know, and, and it's, 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 I, don't, I don't know for sure. I know that we have been advocating uh, to, to have this done. Matter of fact, we was hoping that it would have gotten done prior to the end of the year. But we have been talking to 
uh, our friends in the Senate, and they have assured us that that is the top of their priority to get this done, you know, as soon into this year as it can be done. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, hopefully that happens as yeah. soon as possible. Um, wrapping with an eye to this year, what is the union? What are the union's plans moving forward um, to continue racking up wins in 2022 to grow the membership? Like what are some of our uh, big goals nationally? Well, you know, while I, I talked a lot about the, uh, TSA employees and the determination that was uh, given to them. That's to me is a, a great victory. However, it is not all that needs to happen here uh, because the way it's written, a determination, it can be overturned if we get a new president, right? Mm. So, so the objective here, in my opinion, because these employees have been considered you know, second-class employees for so long. Uh, the objective is to not just have that written in, as a determination, but that it become a matter of law, right? So my objective this year is to make sure that we get that piece of legislation passed so that uh, TSOs will have full bargaining rights under the law and not just because we have someone in there uh, right now that are concerned about those employees because that can change with the turn of a new president. Uh, right. Secondly, okay, secondly, what we have seen across the board, okay, almost in every agency is that they're still, uh, especially when it comes to labor relations, are still holding on to some of the anti-Trump uh, um, era, if you will, executive orders and that language. Hmm. And so it become imperative for us, AFGE, to make sure that each agency understand the urgency of getting rid of those uh, pieces out of the bargaining uh, contract and, 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 and look afresh at, you know, the initiative that has been uh, laid out by President Biden that says that he wants to be the most pro-union president that has ever been in history. We expecting that mm -hmm. to not just be in words, but to be in deeds also. So that's going to be our primary focus to make sure that it's not something I just said, but we can look across the board and we can see it being done. Right, right. Yeah, he's, <laughs> I mean, Unfortunately, and this is this speaks much less to Biden and much more to the um, the rest of the presidents. I think that so far he has been the most pro-union president, at least in my lifetime. Certainly not m more than FDR, but in my lifetime at least. But um, it, it's been a pretty low bar, and so we're hoping to see a lot more from him. Certainly, we've still got we there. The, the labor movement has so many issues. Um, and, you know, right here in Alabama, we've got those coal miners that have been on strike for a long time. And uh, we would love to see I know that they would love to see the Biden administration coming to their aid um, in some form or fashion. But uh, but certainly, uh, you know, like you said, these are these are all big issues and they came from or, or, or these are all big victories for the union, for the American Federation of Government Employees and federal workers everywhere. And uh, they came from pressuring a, a large majority of them came from pressuring the uh, Biden administration to act on behalf of federal employees. So um, so I, I, I appreciate y'all's work 
in D.C. and all of our local union officers here and across the country that are fighting for working people. And, uh, and, and so, yeah, is there anything else that you wanted to make sure you got out there before we let you go? Well, Jacob, I, you know, I just want to say thank you to you for, I mean, this is a very important uh, podcast that you do and, and, and the radio station there. Uh, I've been there live and I enjoyed it then and I'm enjoying it today. Uh, but, you know, it's a way of getting uh, information out to the labor world. Uh, when you brought up something, you know, you talked about the coal miners, right? Uh, I've mm. been to Alabama and, and addressed the coal miners and I am with them 100 percent. But we also have a big initiative uh, that's going to be coming up where I'm going to be asking every labor person in the state of Alabama to support us on this. And that is, you know, making sure that the Amazon workers become unionized. We saw uh, in that initiative, <laughs> yes. the, the, the management got involved. They played dirty pool, you know, and we mm. want to make sure that in, in, in this time around that every employee that works for Amazon know that they have a right to join the union and without fear mm. and without retaliation, because we're going to stand with them and we're going to be right by their side until they check that box that says union. Yes. OK, well, brother. I, I appreciate that. And our labor council up here actually voted at our last meeting to send union members down there once a month, at least through the election to make house calls with RWDSU. Um, and so we appreciate your support uh, and the support of other uh, union folks in the country or and in the state of Alabama. And I know that those folks down at Amazon in Bessemer do as well. And that's, you know, I mean, this is uh, that Amazon fight is and, and, you know, I mean, you came out of an army depot. You're a federal employee. There are a lot of people that may think that, oh, like, what's it got to do with me working for the federal government or you representing federal employees, whether or not Amazon gets unionized? It's because we're all in this together, right? An injury to one is an injury to all. And that's the beauty of the labor movement is that we're all, you know, we're all in this together and we're all fighting for each other. And and that's the way or or, or that's the way that it ought to be, at least. And and to it. And, uh, you know, I see so many people like you and, and, uh, and other folks doing that. And, and so I appreciate I appreciate that. Thank you, Brother Kelly. Yeah, thank you, uh, Jacob. All right. All right. That was uh, Reverend Everett Kelly. He is the national president of the American Federation of Government Employees, representing more than 700,000 federal workers across the country. Um, came out of Anniston Army Depot, the first black president at that local. So we really appreciate his time talking to us today. Uh, our next guest is we're going to be talking about um, about pickets and buying struck goods and whether or not that is good and it is not is the answer but we're going to be talking <laughs> we're going to be talking about that some more on the other side of this break we're going to take a, a really quick break hear some more from our sponsors and we will be right back you're listening to the valley labor report Support for this program also comes from the Ironworkers Local 477. So if you are looking for contractors with lower than average EMR and TRIR, uh, they tell me that if you need to know what those mean, then you will. Uh, or if you need to supplement a workforce at any level for any amount of time, short or long term, if you need ironworkers that come trained and certified at no extra cost, or if you need workers from superintendent down to general laborer, 
and you're looking to start work on a project or you're unhappy with your current contractor situation, you need to call my friend Jeb Miles with the Ironworkers Local 477. They only work with the best in the business, vetted contractors and can do all kinds of jobs from roofing to steel and bridge erection, from welding to heavy rigging, from structural repairs to machinery alignment and much more. They supply manpower on four of the five largest projects in North Alabama, so you know they're legit. If you need good quality, safe, efficient, diligent, and knowledgeable workers on your job, then you need the Ironworkers Local 477. Call Jeb Miles at 256-383-3334 or via email at local477 at bellsouth.net and make sure you tell them that you heard about them on the Valley Labor Report. Work sucks, we know, but you can make it better by organizing with your fellow workers. For more information, call or text the Huntsville Industrial Workers of the World at 256-651-6707. Support for the Valley Labor Report comes from the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers Union. Learn more by visiting www.ifpte.org. Support for this program comes from the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 136, out of Central Alabama. Learn more at ibew136.org. The attorneys of Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs are proud to represent working people in Alabama and across the Southeast. They have over 100 years of experience representing injured workers in workers' compensation, personal injury, and disability claims. Let their attorneys help you when you get injured on the job. You can find them at www.mtandj.com or 855-617-9333. Let Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs help you when you get injured on the job. Again, the website is www.mtandj.com or the phone number 855-617-9333. No representation is made that the quality of legal services is greater than the quality of legal services from other law firms. There's a lot of talk about a shortage of workers, but that's not the case with IBW558. We have provided our customers over 3,000 workers and performed over 3 million man hours in a pandemic year. With 8,000 OJT hours, 900 classroom hours, OSHA 30, and a state license, our members receive the equivalent of a master's degree. That's what makes IBW558 the right choice for your electrical needs. Look us up at Facebook or at IBW558.org. North Alabama DSA is looking for folks to work for a better North Alabama. They prioritize mutual aid, municipal activism, and union solidarity. Contact them on social media or dsanorthalabama at gmail for more information. IBW558 is like a great football team. You've got to have the aptitude, skills, and knowledge to outperform the competition. If you're a non-union electrician, now is the perfect time to get off the sideline and join our team. We have the absolute best wages and benefit package in North Alabama and Southern Tennessee. It's because our team stands together, bargains together, and our families benefit from it. With immediate openings, you have the opportunity to see why the IBW is the right choice. The Valley Labor Report. Labor. 
creates all wealth, and all wealth should go to labor. This is the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison, here with my co-host and fellow agitator, Adam Keller. And you just heard from some of our sponsors, several local unions in the area. And uh, man, if you are out looking for a job right now, there are uh, unions that have... uh, positions open that you're going to make way more than you will working for like Toyota Mazda or Amazon or wherever and with uh the same experience I mean the electrical workers their apprenticeship starts at like 18 to 22 dollars an hour you get 100% employer paid health insurance um you get a retirement plan you get a pension and uh man it's and then you top out at four years or are you begin as a journeyman after four years of an apprenticeship at like 30 something an hour so it's it's a good deal definitely join the trades if you're looking for a job yeah um, and I actually I, I was having some conversations with some uh, senior high school seniors yesterday yeah and was you know I've been really trying to encourage them uh, especially the young men who sort of didn't have much of a plan for after mm-hmm. high school you know they're they're not sure do they just want to go to community college do they want to just you know find some work around the area it's an opportunity and it's it's not um, you don't necessarily have to commit to a, a four year bachelor's degree and the student mm-hmm. debt that comes with that. They have their own training and education. Yeah. So it's it's definitely something uh, to worth looking into, especially mm-hmm. if you're just sort of in a transition. Uh, obviously, this has been the past year or so or two years really has been a transition time for so many of us as workers right. and folks trying to figure out what they want to do. And yeah. and. You so earn uh, while you learn is something. Yeah, that absolutely. Like to you know, instead of <laughs> instead of ending your four year education with like fifty thousand dollars in debt, you end with uh, fifty thousand dollars in the bank. Maybe if you were <laughs> if you're smart enough. Yeah, absolutely. So. Um, so for our next segment, we're going to be talking about picket lines and struck goods. And uh, so a little bit of backstory. Workers at Kellogg's organized into the Bakery Confectionery Tobacco Workers and Grain Millers International Union, BCTGM, went on the third of four large BCTGM strikes in 2021. Uh, they were preceded by strikes at Frito-Lay and Nabisco and succeeded by Local 37 strike against John Denaire Desserts in California, which is still ongoing. Um... When workers strike, they walk off the jobs and they form picket lines outside their places of business. Outside of their places of business, and when we see picket lines, we do not cross them. Uh, the most egregious example of crossing a picket picket line and unforgivable even for many working folk, especially ones that have lived through a strike, is uh, scabbing or working for a company in a position that workers have struck. We also do not consume over picket lines. You do not, under any circumstances, shop at a Kroger where there is a strike taking place, for instance, even though the Kroger may be open with scabs running the, ca- uh, running the cash registers. Um, this is all basically common knowledge, at least to union folks, and part of our project here is to broaden the knowledge about union issues and, uh, and, and educate people about unions and what they can do for folks and, and how we can support them, especially as other union members and, and, and people in the working class. And so uh, we do not even really need a formal call for a boycott to know not to cross a picket line. It's kind of understood. Um, and this is the situation that we were faced with during the Kellogg strike. Uh, the union itself did not call for a pick up, pick a boycott of Kellogg's, the company, 
uh, partly because, as it stated in an email to principal and secondary officers of labor federations across the country, of which I am uh, an officer of, BCTGM workers do work at other quote-unquote Kellogg's-owned brands, and a boycott of Kellogg's could hurt non-striking Kel- uh, non-striking members that work for other Kellogg's companies. Uh, but that email did encourage people not to buy, at this time, Kellogg's dry, ready-to-eat cereal products, uh, which is the arm of the company that was being struck. And now, you know, we can talk about, like, of course, the the, the strategic value of, like, is it is it smart to have people working for the same parent company? I would say not, but that's what the union was asking for, was for people not to buy Kellogg's dry, ready-to-eat cereal products. And in addition to these official calls from the union, uh, we could see striking workers making the same calls. Kevin Bradshaw, president of Local 252G, requested people not buy Kellogg's cereal in an interview with Amy Goodman. And uh, Trevor Beidelman did the same thing in other interviews. He's a president of another local union, I believe, in Battle Creek, Michigan. And for me, and I think most folks interested in acting in solidarity with striking workers, that's all we needed not to buy Kellogg's cereal during the strike. Um, is our lack of consumption any statement on the morality of Kellogg's or post cereal? No. Um, to believe that would be absurd. It's about doing the bare minimum to support a strike. Is our lack of consumption implying a belief that this consumption choice is our best way to support a strike? No. No, I don't think so. Uh, and I think to believe that would be absurd. To, would be absurd. As I said, it's like the bare minimum that we can do to support the strike. We regularly and far more often plugged the donation links to strike funds and even participated in the fundraising stream for Kellogg's Workers uh, Strike Fund hosted by the uh, folks at the Working People podcast. Um I'm very proud to have been able to participate in that, and I'm very proud to have been able to host our own fundraising stream for the mine workers here in Alabama. And that brings us to our next guest, uh, Peter Coffin. They are an internet uh, patriotic socialist, author of the book Custom Reality and You, and they believe that like it's fine to buy struck goods. And so that's why we wanted to bring, the, uh, bring them on to talk about uh we wanted to bring him on to talk about that today. Uh, so, Peter, thank you for taking the time to talk to us. I appreciate it. Can they hear me? Hi. Sorry, I had my mic okay. muted. I didn't want to get any noise through while you were there talking. We um, Thanks for joining us. I want to preface what I'm saying here by uh, mentioning that I'm not saying that it is fine or not fine to buy struck goods, I'm saying that it, it is not really relevant. Like, uh, for one, people who are acting in solidarity aren't really the primary market uh, for them. Like, people who are acting in solidarity are a tiny number of people and will not affect the uh, amount of people eating cereal and consuming cereal in a meaningful amount. At least that's my opinion. Okay, sure. So, so Dear, can I say, yeah, yeah, go Peter, would, would it be accurate to say that your your assessment is more so it's it's not so much about the quality, but just the quantity, the sheer quantity of people who might even participate in this action wouldn't make enough of a difference for it to be worth prioritizing. I mean, is that pretty I, fair? I don't think that it. Well, I think part of the problem is is making such a call uh, makes the implication that it can actually materially have a real effect but like the most people who are buying Kellogg cereal are out um 
well, they don't know about unions, like not enough people are in unions. Like, um, I think that like, if you're going to do something like not buy Kellogg cereal, take the couple dollars that you were not going to spend on the cereal and put it into a strike fund instead. I think that that is, that's the, like, you can even take whatever you save in buying a generic or whatever replacement thing that you get and put it into a strike. fund. I just think that materially it makes much more sense to do something that directly helps the workers rather than attempt to make a, a dent in consumption. So, I mean, what is going to make the most uh, difference? Donating $5 to a strike fund or not spending $5 on Frosted Flakes? I think I don't think that anybody is going to be arguing that uh, donating $5 to a strike fund is going to be more beneficial. The problem that I had was that during the strike, you know, there were people sharing graphics with the Kellogg's brands on them and calling on folks not to buy them. And you took issue with that, like not correcting them and saying that, no, the union's only calling for like the dry cereal, but saying, but, but Mm -hmm. like saying the, the way that you, um, the way that you presented what you were saying was was basically it, it, it seemed like you were attacking people calling for folk calling for people to abide by the wishes of the people that were on strike and attacking them for this and 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 even implying like I implying like I said that we think that it's that that's the best way that we can support these people it's just like like I said that's the bare minimum that we can do as as sure. consumers and it's not like it's not an unsustainable thing to go a few months without Frosted Flakes as opposed to like Publix brand Frosted Flakes or something like that. And so it's, you know, it it, it it would be different if you like retweeted something and said, on top of that, you know, spend the savings that you get from generics to doing this. But like crossing a picket. I did say that though. No, but it was, it was not in addition it was this is basically this is stupid it doesn't make any difference donate to a a strike fund instead it wasn't in addition it was like almost it like you you, i did later say no no you you did say that you should donate to a strike fund and i think maybe even your in your initial tweet you did but like do you not as somebody who knows people who have been in unions their whole life, gone through strikes, like crossing a picket line is a very, like, if it's something that you know about, that is just a, like, one of the worst things that you can do to a union person if you have knowledge about it. And so I I do not have an issue with people calling for boycotts of struck goods in the way that you do. I, well, the reason is because it, it really it, it means nothing like you're not actually crossing a picket line. If you're in California, like they, they don't know, like people don't know that it's going on. Like it might be in the news, but people don't pay attention to the news in the capacity that um, and also for another, the, the news isn't viewed by the entire country either. But to me. This it, it's talking about making consumption a the way that you've presented it. I think it, it views the uh, the wishes of uh, some workers as infallible and above critique. Uh, I think that this is a useless tactic. I don't think that it is useless or useful to um, 
not purchase goods. I don't think that it does anything. I think that it it more or less creates a moral issue out of something that could very well be a material issue um, if it were expressed in a different way. I don't think expressing it through demanding people consuming different is helpful. I, like the the point is to withhold labor, not to um, not to have moral consumption. But again, it, it's not even about like saying Post Cereal is a more moral company than Kellogg's. It's and and it's not even saying that um, they that the workers' strategies are above critique or infallible. It's that this is a like like not consuming something during a strike is a good way to support people, and even uh, even at a. a on the margins, that is obviously going to help. You know, I mean, so people have like on the internet. You know, the the serfs who is the person that you uh, uh, that you quote tweeted initially, they have what an audience in the tens of tha- hundreds of thousands, maybe. You know, I, I'm not totally sure, but uh, you know, several large creators and several uh union and and lots of union people. You know, every single principal and secondary officer of labor federations in the country, from uh, local labor councils to state federations, got that email requesting people not to buy uh Kellogg's dry cereal. Like that's a lot of people. Do you think that is a meaningful number of people who consume Kellogg cereal. Do you think that that is their primary market or even like a large secondary market? Uh, I don't, I don't, am, do I think that that's going to make or break the strike? No, but do I think that people supporting a strike in that way is meaningful uh, in a material sense? Yes. Yes, I do. Okay. So how does it affect the company's bottom line materially enough to actually make that change? Like how is it materially effective? Uh, you're so you're asking me to explain uh, how it's materially effective when people don't buy products. <laughs> yeah, how does consumption of a tiny little demographic made up of very few people how does that materially affect the overall product in order to exert pressure uh, on the producers? Sure. So how the, does that actually? Yeah. So the the producers the the way that they make money is by people uh, buying products, and so if you're squeezing them from both ends of the uh, production line, you're not squeezing them though. The people who buy cereal are like people who send their kids to school every day, not people who are spending time on Twitter every day. Cereal is not something that leftists have a big pull over. Like, it's, I'm no, sorry, it's, it's that's not, not even. It's not even, like I said, every single, uh, every single president and secretary treasurer of every single labor council and state federation got this email from the national AFL-CIO requesting people not buy. These are not like leftist people. And there are 12 million union members in the country. And I would How hazard- many people buy cereal every day? How many people buy cereal every day? Is it 12 million? I don't know how many people buy cereal every day, but I think that it's way more than 12 million. I'll tell you that it's way so more than you 12 don't, million. 12 million. You don't think that some number in the double digits of millions uh, across the United States has any effect. Them changing their consumption habits for three months has any effect on a company's bottom line. No. Well, I just if they can bring in stabs. It, OK, it has a 
tiny little effect that doesn't actually change their decision-making process. If I if I may interject here, uh, I guess I'm trying to kind of synthesize uh, between the two of you because I you know there's a lot um, we have in common here. Honestly, I think my question would be: <clears throat> Is there a number or a uh, strength that we could reach as a labor movement uh, where it because at some point in our past, uh, at one, you know, we had over a third of workers belong to unions officially, uh, with many mm-hmm. more who were, you know, uh, spouses and, and children and, you know, in the kind of the family of labor. So, you know, do you see a point in the future where if the labor movement grows larger and perhaps more importantly, more effective and stronger, where this kind of boycott could be effective in, you know, actually hurting the bottom line of a company in theory yes absolutely um it is like there's a tiny number of people in unions now compared to where it used to be and i think that that's very unfortunate but i think that that's a large reason why just having union members not by serial is not enough like uh, like and on top of that you aren't going to have a large number of people we aren't going to have a large number of people yeah, I mean, and one thing that I, I think that um, with with a consumer boycott, per se, of a struck good, I would take it more as a organizing opportunity, like an educational opportunity, because I think you, you're correct that many folks across the country are going to go to Walmart or Publix or wherever. They're buying their groceries for their family. They have no idea which goods are struck goods, which, you know, what may be happening correct, in these companies. Yeah. So... To me, I see it as an opportunity, uh, those of us who do know about what's happening, to try to have those conversations with folks of, hey, you know, and I, I've had that with friends of mine and said, I, you know, I just got back from the grocery store. I didn't buy X, Y, and Z because of this strike that's mm-hmm. happening, uh, you know, whether it's Kellogg, Frito-Lay. And those are good conversations to get people engaged and, and know what's happening. Um, you know, I, I don't... I hear exactly what you're saying, that just the sheer numbers of folks who could participate may not, you know, have the clout to to ding their bottom line in a way that's going to necessarily help the strikers. Uh, So there's that part of it. And I think the other part of it would just be more like a uh, a morale um, sort of symbolism. And, you know, I also I think I, I hear where you're coming from on that, that there's a lot of danger in terms of. Our politics already is so much about um, perception and um, separated from from real life, more or less. Um, so much of our politics is spectacle, and there there is some danger, I think, in just um, going down that road further. But um, I, I agree with you, Jacob. There there is sort of a a line with folks who do know, folks who are in unions. If you do know. I do think you have some responsibility to at least make a good faith effort to to uphold any boycotts that are called by unions or, you know, not crossing picket lines, whatever that may be. Uh, Understanding that that's not necessarily possible for every person in every situation. But, you know, so that that's just. I guess I'm trying to be the centrist here and kind of. uh, There's another piece. There's another piece here in that. 
Um, when an email goes out to all the people sort of behind the scenes at a union and the union organizes this action, it's very different than calling for people not to consume something on Twitter. That's that's something that it, it's not necessarily an organized action. It's not necessarily one that you can reliably assume that people see. It's I mean, there are there are other issues here besides it just doesn't materially change anything. Um there is a big difference between an organized union action versus calling for something on Twitter. Yeah. And I think that that maybe has gotten lost. Yeah. And, a bit as and well. Jacob, not, I don't want to pretend to speak for you, but I mean, I think that's something that you a hundred percent not only agree with, that's something we've discussed on this show in terms of uh, like the whole general strike thing back yeah. in the fall. And it was, you know, <laughs> oh, it was yeah. left wing people on Twitter. I, I'm sure acting, you know, from a good place in their heart, but you know, we can't, a handful of folks get on social media and say, hey, everybody, we're going on strike on, you know, November 1st. That's not the same as, um, you know, a handful of unions coming together to mm-hmm. say we've talked with our mm-hmm. membership and we're all saying we should all go on strike on November 1st. Right. I think there's a big difference there. And and, and on that point, I think yeah. we're, we're largely in the agreement there. I'd have to say yes. I think... Uh, in terms of especially with the general strike issue, we're in hard agreement there. I get I, I <laughs> it's it's very I guess it's very difficult for me to um to grok uh like saying that this is you know it some of the things that you said w- was like um again kind of implying that i think that this is going to be the make or break thing and i think that the make or break thing is going to be the withholding of labor but as the bare minimum that i can do to change my consumption habits for three months encourage other people to do the same um and to donate to strike funds which like i said we we plug strike funds way more i don't even know that we that we mentioned the um not eating Kellogg's cereal on the show. I'm sure we, I'm sure, I guess we did, but we plugged the strike funds much more often. We participated in a live stream supporting the strike fund. So obviously we're in agreement withholding labor, donating to strike funds is going to be the bigger thing, but it is it. I believe that, uh, when workers strike a company that, the bare minimum that we can do is not buy goods from that company. And I, I believe that uh, that is not going to be the principal thing, but I think that that makes a difference. And I think that, um, and I, I don't see how um, dissuading people from doing that makes anything better. Does that make sense? Uh, well, do, like, do you think? I, I, yeah, do, I understand. Do you think that? I think I understand. Yeah. Where you're do coming do from you here. think that telling people, okay, the workers here are asking you to not buy this product while they're on strike, a totally reasonable thing to do, very easy, but it doesn't matter. You shouldn't do it. Or, or, or you didn't say you shouldn't do it. You said it doesn't matter. Um, you know, your consumption means nothing. Do you think that that helps? the strike. I I think that it helps it an equal amount as, as doing it in, in all honesty. I don't think that it is, it is a, a material effect in terms of like calling for something on Twitter and uh, having people do it. I, I just genuinely, 
I, I don't think that this is talking about the actual issue. And, and for me, yes, uh, it's if, if you morally don't feel good buying struck goods, I would say don't do it. Um, if you don't feel like it's uh, it's it's a good thing, I, I agree with people's decision not to do that. However, I don't think that on social media now, keep in mind, this is making a hard distinction between doing it on social media and doing it uh, via the way that it was done behind the scenes through uh, organizing the union to do it. But on social media, calling people uh, to not consume something just it doesn't make any sense. People don't understand the context. People don't know where you're coming from. It may not be seen, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but why would you not then had, elevate? Like, I, I understand where you're coming from. Not a lot of people will see that. A lot of people don't understand the context but behind picket lines and consumer boycotts supporting striking workers. And, and a lot of people don't know that history. Why would you not instead then elevate the workers calling for us not to eat the Kellogg cereal that are striking, that are foregoing, that are sacrificing a lot. I mean, I've never been on a strike. I know people that have been on strike. I know people that have lost houses being on strike. That's a big, big commitment. Mm-hmm. And these people making this commitment, uh, doing more than uh, you or I, Adam has never been on strike, than any, any of us have ever done uh, fighting for themselves and other members of the working class. Why would you not elevate their their requests to not buy Kellogg's cereal, contextualize it, say that the more important thing you can do is donate to the strike fund, that this has a history, not buying struck goods. Why would you not do that instead of poo-pooing people? Instead of ask them to donate to their strike funds instead? I don't know. Maybe because I think that it's more useful to spend that time asking people to donate to strike funds. I I think... uh like I said, you guys are are not nearly as far apart as it maybe I thought coming in. I don't I don't think that we're that far apart, but I think that there is a, a to me I, I feel like there is a, a distinction here in that uh, we get to this this more like a national stage, and I don't think that it works in the same way as it does on a more local stage. That's also a good distinction, I would say, because, you know, uh, the supporters of a local in a fairly small community, like, you know, in Brookwood, Alabama, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. 1,100 miners in UMWA and their families are a very sizable piece of that entire region. Absolutely. And and they certainly can have some influence on... uh, Yeah, I mean, the scabs they're bringing in... They're are coming from like West Virginia and Kentucky. They're not coming from the local community. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, that's also a good distinction, I think, that you brought up, you know, the, the national versus the local, because eleven 1, hundred folks in that one county or, you know, in two or three counties certainly can sway, um, you know, economic data through a collective effort and a concerted effort. Uh, well, yeah, if you're drawing data from a specific region. And you can get people in that region to act more in unison in an organized manner. I would say that that is a much, much more um, that is where it starts making sense to do things like that. Whereas, sorry, on the on the national stage, you start to concede things like the market simply working through simple supply and demand dynamics. And that is not how the market works. It's a very uh, complicated uh, thing that involves marketing It involves uh, various other supply chain sources. There's there's things that to 
advocate different consumption on a national level, it a comes off to somebody who doesn't know what's going on as a moral thing and b on the national level you don't have the ability to organize just a regular person you're just kind of asking them to do something and i just don't see that as effective i guess probably probably the best thing is is coming up with that distinction here between national and local locally i would say you know it's probably very good to say you know hey, don't buy from this company, don't do this. this is, we're speaking on two different stages, though, I think. Uh, and one last thing, and, and I'll let y'all get back to it, but I, I wanted to just suggest that I think the, the labor movement as a whole, uh, as we've said many times, including today, obviously we are a fraction of what we were uh, at the height of our strength in this country. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I think we do need to look at what tactics can we deploy that can support our our class broadly and, of course, our members specifically. The growing of the Right, unions. yeah. How can we grow our numbers? How can we grow our strength? Uh, how can we grow our support in communities that, for whatever reason, you know, can't join the union yet? Um, so I think consumer boycotts can be a weapon that can be leveraged. Um, but I... I I understand right now, uh, especially like you said on a national stage, it, it may be more just a symbolic kind of thing. Uh, it, it may not be that big of a piece of the puzzle, but I do think moving forward, that's something that all of us need to consider: is are there ways we can leverage consumption to support our goals as workers? Uh, because I think all three of us uh, agree here that your your labor is your ultimate weapon, your ability to produce and your ability to stop producing in order to get something. Uh, that's that's the magic right and, there. But are there other things we can do to support then, that? There's one other issue in that a lot of the time I am arguing with people online. There are people who are coming at me that do think that consumption is the primary vector by which you can take some form of action. They are obviously people who aren't involved in unions. And and I I will say I can tend to get rather annoyed by that. And uh, I find it to be kind of a defeatist position. Um, it doesn't mean that every single person who thinks that thinks that it's the primary um, vector by which you might be able to exert power on a company. And and I, I wanted to make that. Right. And, and you know, I think that speaks to a much larger trend. Um, as I said earlier, you know, politics is, is much more spectacle and entertainment than it used to be. And, and I think consumption has largely replaced true material power as a way in which we, you know, deal with politics. Um, which I think that is a right. problem because it's it's we don't we don't have the 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 power in the spectacular realm we only really have the power in terms of like you said primarily in labor right right um adam have we got kenzo in the waiting room yet uh yes kenzo is on the line for us so uh we are gonna have to let you go we've got kenzo shibata from the chicago teachers union we're going to be talking to them about uh their um uh what they've got going on up there uh there was one more thing that i I wanted to talk to you about maybe we can talk about it some other time though uh so i appreciate your time uh and no i appreciate i appreciate you having me on this uh, helps clarify all right 
This is what this is what materialism. Yeah, is. absolutely. I, I enjoy the the dialogue and the back and forth and trying to you know reach some points of agreement and clarify some things and uh, absolutely. Yeah, and, Thank you for having yeah, me. Yeah, look All forward right. to checking out your stuff. Thanks. Thanks, Peter. So the past two years have been extremely difficult for teachers, and despite all objective evidence pointing to this fact, there are some that insist that the pandemic has been a paid vacation for educators. Uh, Never mind that schools across the country are seeing record quit rates and retirements, including our own local schools. Never mind that teachers are reporting working longer hours for no more pay as a result of online and hybrid learning. And never mind that longstanding issues like classroom sizes, school aides, and nurses have only gotten worse when they have never been more important. This pressure has built up and subsided, alternating back and forth as waves of the coronavirus rose and fell and this wave has been no different in that um that uh it has increased pressures on teachers but it has been different in the fact that there are more cases than ever before um and despite the new variant being more mild its transmissibility is making up for that fact um as we move closer and closer to record high hospitalizations as well as cases, which hospitalizations and deaths are going to be the numbers that we want to look at moving forward as hopefully variants of the virus become more mild and more mild. The hospitalizations and deaths are the number to track, and they are going up towards a record high as well. And it's in this environment that the teachers have made uh, louder their calls for better safety protocol, and the workers in the Chicago Teachers Union have made the Democratic decision to work from home for a short while because their needs for a safe working environment and learning environment for the students and their families communities uh, and their families and communities are not being met after they made that decision despite the school system having enough time to distribute laptops and other material that they purchased for remote learning instead of doing that and ensuring that students are able to in fact learn CPS Chicago Public Schools locked out teachers and canceled school entirely all this while claiming that they're doing it for the children adam is a former history teacher and he's now working at a, as a union stagehand and he substitutes occasionally so adam can you tell us really quickly before we bring kenzo on uh what the local environment has been like for educators uh you know there's a pretty stark contrast between uh what's happening in chicago and what's happening down here in terms of the way the pandemic has been treated uh, i can tell you you know i was in a school yesterday and uh less than five percent of the people on campus are wearing a mask and that's students employees anybody other than that, it's really no different than what you would have experienced in 2019 before the pandemic. Uh, contact tracing has been, to some degree, abandoned at this point. Um, you know, it's so there are things that Chicago Public Schools is doing that would seem like progress down here because at least, you know, some COVID tests are being distributed and there were some efforts at vaccination sites on campuses and things like that. Whereas uh, at many parts of Alabama, we're just pretending it's not happening. Um, And you just hope that you live through that. And that's really the reality that our, our students and educators and their parents have been faced with. And, you know, it certainly feels from my perspective, uh, that we've given up and uh what inspires me is that in chicago they haven't and they won't Mm -hmm. and um so there are things that 
you know, they're critiquing their superintendent and mayor for doing for half-assing things when our folks never even tried to half-ass it down right. here. Um, so, you know, as, there's going to be some folks listening, maybe some teachers listening to think, oh, wow, you know, why are they complaining about that? Because it doesn't have to be this way. Mm-hmm. And that was a conversation I had with a teacher yesterday that, you know, it just we we have allowed it to get to this point here in Alabama, but it doesn't have to be that way. And in Chicago, uh, they have, over the years, built a union strong enough and a movement strong enough to where they can exert demands. And the other piece of that is that our public schools have been left to essentially be the sh- triage of our entire society. Uh, public schools are expected to fix all of our social ills, you know, poverty and crime and inequality. We've sort of all dumped that onto teachers and to schools like, y'all go fix all these problems. Yeah. Well, you know, that's asinine on its face, but the flip side to it is, okay, if that's the situation we're in, well then damn it, just do the best we can to to do that and to do it right. And I think that's what I uh, see out of the Chicago Teachers Union. Um, I'm sure Kenzo and and your brothers and sisters would love to not have the responsibility to fix every problem in Chicago. Uh, But when you're kind of left in that situation, well, you got to do what you got to do. And so um, I give a lot of credit for them not resigning themselves to unsafe conditions for their students and for their, uh, you know, their colleagues. And uh, real quick, I wanted to do a blast from the past quote here back from uh, the Class Action Activist Teachers Handbook, which came out, gosh, I don't know, almost 10 what years ago. Kenzo. Yeah, Kenzo's in there. Um, oh, wow. But, wow, Kenzo's old. <laughs> uh, there's a quote there that I, I just wanted to set. I don't look as old. But. No, <laughs> you don't. Uh So something I wanted to pull this quote real quick. The CTU has become recognized as vibrant, democratic and militant in a country where many unions are more likely to be engaged in the organizational equivalent of curling up into the fetal position. Unions have been uh, battled by decade, battered by decades of attacks from big business and both political parties. Yet they've been largely unwilling to remake themselves into a key player of a broader social movement, uh, nor to educate and empower their membership. So how the CTU became the kind of union that it is, one that could take on the right flank of the Democratic Party and the free market reformers and all of these issues that we're encountering. uh, I think that's a very important story. So that's why you hear me on this show uh, talk about my inspiration uh, that came from the Caucus of Rank and File Educators, uh, of which Kenzo is part of, and their historic strikes over the past decade. So, with all that said, uh, I will stop talking and let Kenzo take it away. Yeah, Kenzo is a uh, high school teacher, member of the Chicago Teachers Union Executive Board, and a co-founder of the Caucus of Rank and File Educators, like Adam said, which is a group of Chicago educators dedicated to building up their union and fighting for the rights of educators and students. Kenzo, uh, thanks for taking the time to join us. I appreciate it. Well, thanks so much for having me on. One thing, though, I want to push back on is that CPS isn't half-assing. They're showing their whole ass through this whole process. They, um, uh, that's, so that's believable. I kind of want to open up by just saying, like, right now, one in four people who are being tested for COVID in Chicago 
we're in a position now where there's a testing facility almost on every block, lines down the block uh, for each of them. So a lot of people are getting tested. One in four are, are showing up to have COVID. And the Illinois Department of Health Services did a study where, <clears throat> excuse me, they show that the vast majority of transmission is happening through schools. So this is, uh, you know, the one in four number actually came from Dr. Arwadi, who was appointed by Mayor Lori Lightfoot as being the commissioner of, of health, public health in Chicago. And the other statistic came from a board appointed by our governor, J.B. Pritzker. So this isn't data that I'm coming up with out of nowhere. Right. That's not y'all's numbers. That's their numbers. Exactly. And like they hired people to pull out these numbers. And so as the people that are in these schools that are watching our children get COVID, uh, a friend of mine, her um, classroom aide died from COVID just a few months ago. And that was in the papers. That's not something that we're making up. Uh, we're not even saying let's go remote for the year. We're saying what would be practical right now is for a couple of weeks, you know, coming out of winter break, people were traveling, you know, just watch the numbers and let this thing die down, uh, the surge, and then we can go back into in-person, even though we know that even in-person, it's not 100%. It's not anywhere near what, you know, ideal, uh, but it's a compromise we made. In fact, a year ago, we were going to do, well, we we did a, this kind of work action where we were working remotely and we voted and decided to go back in person because, you know, the public at that point, it seemed like they wanted in-person education again. And we knew that the, you know, it takes a toll on students when they don't get to be in person and, and work with teachers and each other and counselors and social workers, all the, you know, all the positions we fought for in the last contract, we know students need access to these people. And that demonstrates that we don't take these decisions lightly. And, you know, this was not a decision, this work action we're taking now to work remotely. This was something that we voted upon and the vast majority of members said, let's do it. Some members were hesitant even to vote yes on it, but mm -hmm. said, you know, we need to have solidarity on this. We're looking at the numbers. Uh, this is a, a matter of practicality. This isn't a matter of attacking the mayor as she paints that in the mainstream media has given her a microphone to say whatever she wants with no representation mm -hmm. from the teachers union or even individual teachers, you know, MSNBC, CNN, they, you know, I see them as being very much in, you know, instruments of the Biden administration who promised, mm -hmm. you know, if he were reelected, he'd open up all the schools within his first hundred days, you know, COVID numbers be damned. And, you know, it's really, I feel like this is really funneling up from the national democratic party who don't care about our students and our teachers. You know, we are workers right. and they are potential workers. And, you know, they don't really see us as individuals. So we have to come together as a union and, you know, advocate for ourselves and our communities. So, you know, right now we're looking at the numbers, seeing how, you know, they're going. We want to return to our, you know, classrooms, hopefully after the King, you know, Martin Luther King Day break. And uh, the mayor wants to fight us tooth and nail, even on this, you know, very reasonable um, ask that we just go remote for a couple weeks. Yeah, I mean, this is like, so 
there there's so much going on about this conversation about teachers. For one, people act like schools have been remote uh, for the entire two years, and uh, most like basically every school district in the country has been in person schooling for this entire school year. You know, so I don't know what people are talking about there. And like you said, these these I I just want to I I want to read off the demands that that the Chicago Teachers Union has um to to meet the needs of the educators and the students. And th- these are not like these aren't crazy things. Uh one is have enforceable metrics to shift school to remote. Okay? Uh, like, that seems like ha- going to remote learning while we have more positive tests, more positive cases than we have in the entirety of the pandemic, 600,000 a day, mm-hmm. uh, while hospitalizations come to their almost record number. Like, going to remote learning for a couple weeks seems totally, that's not crazy at all all when we spent almost a full year at remote learning that's totally reasonable also real contract tracing totally reasonable high quality masks have n95s they've the cps is actually according to this been rejecting help from the state for n95 masks and uh and then proper testing and 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 temporary remote learning while this wave goes like this that's not that's not crazy stuff that's not crazy stuff and it's so frustrating seeing people attack teachers who, like, what, presumably go into this because of the prestige? Like, I mean, what? who are these teachers that are going to teach because they think it's some cushy... Like, these people don't exist. And folks are acting like they do. Folks are acting like they do. And it's just... It makes me so frustrated. And I can't imagine how y'all are feeling being the brunt of the nation's anxiety and all, all this like pent up aggression from uh you know from the right wing on teachers that they've always hated teachers but i mean it's like i can't imagine how y'all are feeling right now well you know it's definitely taken a mental toll on me personally my well my wife has stage 4 breast cancer so at one point i was granted an exception to work remotely a year ago uh, when when we went hybrid before we went fully in person and because you know even omicron with its light symptoms mm-hmm. that could be a death sentence for her and we shouldn't as workers have to deal with that just to keep the engines rolling and so that actually sent me into a really deep mental break for a while i had to take some time off of work um which you know we're entitled to fmla and i took that And, you know, I'm still adjusting um, to life after that period, but I know many, many teachers uh, enrolled in similar psychiatric programs than I did. Like my group therapy sessions had, I can't, you know, give out names or anything, but more than half are CPS teachers. And Mm -hmm. they basically were dealing with decades of stress that came to a head during this pandemic when we were constantly fighting um, just to have safe working conditions. And a number of these right. people were also caregivers like me. And one of the things that I really want to get across because the mainstream media, even the sympathetic people don't understand is that this all does fall on, in the, the hands of Lori Lightfoot. 
because I, the view there was one, there were two members of the view who were sympathetic to teachers, one of whom she didn't do her research because she said, why is Lori? She asked, why is Lori Lightfoot making all these decisions when it should be the superintendent? Well, what we have in Chicago is since 1995, an appointed school board appointed by the mayor. And those people vote on who the superintendent is. In that law, it's called the Amendatory Act in 1995, they declared that we no longer need a superintendent, but we'd have a CEO, which is not just branding. It meant that someone with a superintendent license isn't required to hold that position. Janice Jackson, who was our uh, previous CEO, she was an actual educator. Uh, our current one, uh, Pedro Martinez, is not. So... It doesn't. Yeah, I saw something saying that they couldn't even substitute because they don't have the proper certification. That was actually, you know, that was Karen Lewis's line from when Arnie Duncan was CEO. Yeah. That like he can't he can't just substitute a class one day if he decided to. Mm-hmm. He's someone who never stepped foot in a in a real public school classroom before taking on CPS and then taking on the nation's schools for Christ's sake. So it. Yeah. Um, it really does pay to look at the nuance. And, you know, if you just kind of look at things from the outside, you don't see all that, that, you know, one, one uh, light at the end of the tunnel is, you know, CTU and our community partners fought hard in Springfield, our nation's our our state capital. So we will have a, a, an elected school board phased in starting in the year 2024, but how many people are going to get infected with, uh, COVID between now and, you know, the beginning of the phase in when there's going to be some real accountability for our board of education and the head of our schools. Like, you know, this right. is something that we have to yeah. act on fast. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we've been talking to Kenzo Shibata. We're going to go a little bit over online as we go off of WVNN. So if you want to hear the rest of our conversation with Kenzo, follow us on YouTube and Facebook at the Valley Labor Report. And until next week, We'll be talking to Kinzo, uh, and then we'll see you next Saturday. Bye bye. Oh, yeah. We don't have to play any ads or anything. We can just go back to uh, Kinzo. Okay. All right. All right. Sorry about that, guys. Uh, so yeah, we are. Uh, we're still uh, going strong with. Kenzo Shibata here. He is a high school teacher, a member of the Chicago Teachers Union Executive Board, and a co-founder of the Caucus of Rank-and-File Educators. Kenzo, uh, thanks for taking the time to talk to us, and and, and, uh, have you... uh, I just went ahead and and went over 11. Um, Are we gonna... uh, Do you still have some time to chat? Yeah, I have some time, yeah. Okay, cool, cool, cool. Yeah, so, um, what... Like, why... One of the things that, that... I was flummoxed by is that um, they bought all like a hundred thousand laptops or something, and they have not, uh, and and they didn't distribute it. Are there are are students remote learning yet, or are classes still canceled? So classes are still canceled. Um, That's crazy. I could talk from my experience. My my kid, I'm uh, you know my kids in third grade, and their teacher. Uh, sent them home with packets for at least two weeks. You know, thankfully, I'm still on leave right now from work and I'm an experienced teacher. So I'm doing homeschool right now. 
the teachers are sitting at home behind their laptops waiting for CPS just to open up the system so they can Google meet with students and, and teach remotely. But yeah, what right now is happening, it's a lockout. We are not allowed to, even even myself on leave, I went on just to check, to download my uh, W-2 to start on my taxes. And I can't get in the system right now because all CTU members are, are locked out of uh, online systems. That's, that's <laughs> why would they not? So, so I can almost, I can understand on one level, like, okay, the next day, maybe they can say we were anticipating not having a vote to go to remote learning so we didn't pass out the laptops but why immediately the next day when they knew that teachers were going to be logging into remote learn like they're saying all of this is for the students why would they not at that point i mean even just for their own public image like wow look at these you know they they could say something like wow look at these like selfish teachers but we're going to do what we can to make sure that these students can mm-hmm. learn so we're going to distribute this and we're going to continue fighting um uh you know what, to to make sure that students get back at, like why would I mean I just I can't wrap my mind around not having classes right now. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. why are they doing that? The thing with uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot is she's a very hard person to negotiate with because she acts very erratically. Like a normal boss, even Rahm Emanuel kind of knew that he could push us only so far before it would start biting him politically because he's, you know, he's a good political operator for his means, at least. Lori Lightfoot comes out of the corporate law world. And I've talked to a number of my friends who are attorneys and they say that big law, they, they have a thing called big law brain where the people basically don't have values, but their only value is winning. And anytime they're met with a challenge, whether it's a reasonable challenge or an unreasonable one, they will treat it exactly the same and they will try to kill it with fire. Because at the end of the day, you know, if you're working in corporate law, you have to have no morals. You have to go in and say, I'm just going to win for this evil corporation that's polluting, uh, you know, the lakes or, you know, a school board that's trying to uh, um, squash a union. So, Every one of her moves is a reaction to uh, anyone questioning her total authority. And outside of, you know, a therapist, I don't really know how to calculate her moves. Yeah, I mean, it's just I can't I I can't figure. And she's trying to make y'all look like the bad guys while her child is in uh, private school that is doing remote learning. Right. Yeah, and the school board still meets remotely. Yeah, why are they meeting remotely? If that, I mean, why you gotta that love happening? that when when the uh, uh, officials themselves won't meet in person, but by God, all the staffers better go in. That's so. That's just amazing. Like I can't. I mean, good grief. And all these people on all these people, uh, uh, like in the mainstream media, like in MSNBC, CNN, Fox News, like. For some reason, they're all remote too. Talking about yep. how y'all need to be in cur- in person teaching like thirty something kids in one room at one time, while they're not even meeting in a room with five people in it, in a room that's bigger than one of your classrooms that's supposed to have thirty people in it. And this is I mean, so instructive right now, just of looking at how the media work because. This is one of those rare occasions where Fox News and MSNBC are on the same side. They might have different talking heads, yeah. 
but they're all agreeing that, you know, the teachers are, we're unreasonable. And they're not even just looking at like, what are we getting out of this? We're not getting anything out of this. I can tell you as someone who taught for more than a year remotely, it's more work, it's less rewarding, and it's extremely uh, harsh on your mental health sitting behind a screen all day when, you know, you really want to walk around a classroom, check on students, see how they're doing. If a kid has a rough day, you want to be able to spot that yeah. out, talk to them, maybe mm-hmm. refer them. Those to organic people. conversations, those organic conversations that you have just by being there, just, you know, in the hallway or like you said, checking on folks, you know, before the bell rings, those kind of things make such a difference. And uh, you're absolutely right. That's something that is such a uh, misnomer that's being portrayed by the media as Mm -hmm. if remote learning is just some cushy gig for teachers to be able to, you know, prop their feet up and uh, play on the computer for a few minutes and call it a day. And that's just, while that I'm sure is what superintendents and people in central office are doing remotely. That is not the reality for educators uh, working remotely. And um, I think you you just hit something very important is what are we getting out of this? Right. If 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 we're to believe the media narrative that, uh, you know, CTU is just uh, greedy or uh, over overbearing and they're just trying to bully the mayor to what end? Yep. Yeah, you're not getting a big pay raise. You're not getting like all these lovely new benefits. You are making your schools and communities safer. Right. Wow. How dare you? <laughs> How dare you push your weight around uh, to actually try to address this pandemic that our government has thus far been incapable or unwilling to adequately address? And it's, yeah, that's just so weird that they want to. They have that narrative that we're trying to bully the mayor. Because we're talking about tens of thousands of people like mm-hmm. we're not going to willy nilly do something. And as it is with this lockout, you know, we're going to have to negotiate it. But we're probably, you know, we're, we can't clock in, you know, Chicago teachers clock in and clock out like any other worker. We're not having the chance to do that. So we're putting our salary on the line to do this. Why would we do this just to bully a mayor that we could just right. organize against and, you know, elect someone better in a few years? You know, we don't have to bully this person. We just want to have some fair negotiations. Right. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask you about, Kenzo, is my understanding, and especially I think you mentioned it earlier. We talked to you last year um, and I know that y'all were able to fight to secure a safety agreement in terms of re- returning to in-person instruction. Uh, that safety agreement expired mm-hmm. before the school year started. Is that right? That's correct. And all that we're really asking for is, you know, some of those measures to be put back into place. And one of those things is the threshold for cases. And it was around 10% at that time. We've more than exceeded that at this point. And the mayor's like, well, you know, legally, I don't have to do anything because the agreement expired. Right. And and I think that's um, we mentioned the other day when we were doing kind of like a end of the year wrap up. uh, And and we talked about how there wasn't a ton of labor action coming from teachers uh, throughout 2021. And, you know, my initial instinct on that is to some degree, it's because we all fought so hard in 2020 to see so much of that fizzle out, you know, and and I think that's part of why there's been a burnout is uh, even if we were able to get some concessions in terms of safety, 
to go into 2020, the 2020 school year, well, by the time this school year started, it mostly had been abandoned, uh, mm-hmm. it seems like, across the country. And that certainly is the case here in Alabama. Um, and one thing I uh, just kind of would love your feedback on is, what do you say to an educator in a place like Alabama, for example, where um, not, I mean, none of the protocols or, or actions, however inadequate or, or, you know, half measure that Chicago Public Schools is doing, mm-hmm. many of our school districts haven't even come close to pretending they were going to do that. So, you know, if you're, if you're an educator in Alabama, you may be looking at the struggle that y'all are going through and a little bit confused um do you have any anything you kind of want to just share to to teachers down here and and why your fight in chicago is important Mm -hmm. and maybe what we can learn from that well you know we in many ways in the last 10 years have really set the standard for what people uh, are willing to fight for and what they want to expect like we got um some really big against we we fought for rent control uh on our last contract fight in 2019 we conceded but we got out of that additional funding for schools that have high populations of homeless students so we raised expectations but then you know when the rubber hit the road you know at least we got out the message that homeless students need extra help you know, students um, that are maybe on the brink of homelessness, even they need extra help. And if we can't facilitate that um, policy wise uh, and, you know, the the ruling class is going to push that onto the schools, well, we're going to have to have more money for them in the schools. So that that's a very tough, tough question, though, about what to do in places like Alabama. Um, when I was working as a statewide organizer in Illinois, you know, I worked with some vastly different districts, different communities in rural areas and in exurban and suburban areas. And as far as like a, a, a balls to the wall kind of union fight, that often is almost a bridge too far for people to, you know, to, to handle. Um, but simply reaching out to parents, finding sympathetic parents getting them the right information. Um, I think that is a seed that could be planted. And that's something we did in Chicago too. It just, we had to run a lot of very concurrent campaigns because we're just, you know, a huge district, 400,000 students, uh, 20, almost 30,000 educators. And we did start out with community groups because we are, uh, you know, a major urban place. We do have community organizations to work with. Smaller towns, it might be the church. You know, it might be going to churches. And I know that there's a lot of misinformation about COVID and there's a lot of very valid skepticism about vaccines and about the protocols, um, considering, you know, we can't we can't trust the state most of the time. So I think it really is one on one conversations and it's not going to move mountains quickly, um, but it is, you know, I think the seed that could go on to uh, flower, you know, bigger organizing campaigns. Yeah, I think that's that's great. And um, something that resonated with me is that y'all are setting expectations. Um, and, and I, as someone who was a staffer for, uh, you know, an NEA affiliate, 
I, I would definitely say that what Chicago was doing was what I look towards and what, mm. you know, some of my colleagues look towards and, uh, you know, what Chicago doing about whatever issue. And that's a good a glimpse of kind of what's the cutting edge, uh, both good and bad, because uh, as we you and I have discussed before, Chicago has been a, a testing ground for a lot of the privatization and uh, anti-teacher tactics. So... Chicago is often a glimpse into the future uh, for, you know, a more rural school community or somewhere in the South. If it's happening in Chicago, it may not be happening here yet, but it's very likely that it will. Uh, Whether that's something terrible that a superintendent is doing or the opportunity for educators to band together and fight back. And, um, you know, I think the reason I opened this segment with that quote is because which all have built did not happen overnight. Mm-hmm. Um, it has been, you know, uh, many years in the making of those community co- coalitions, those one-on-one conversations you just described, building into something much broader, which, you know, resulted in relationships that really are not just in the schools but in the neighborhoods. And and so, for those of you who are listening more locally. Um, that's, I mean, we're not even there yet. We haven't even made it to that point of, of having strong bonds that we've taken to another level. Um, so I, I really uh, I second your advice, have conversations, talk with your parents and students uh, and see where they're at. And, and I think, no, you probably can't transform your local into mm. a, a militant fighting, you know, CTU clone overnight uh, or maybe ever. Uh, but you can have some democratic dialogue and decision making on here's what our expectations are and we're not going to go below this level. And if we do, this is what we need to do in response. I think just that basic level um that's not really happening here, but it needs to be. And I hope that uh, any educators listening can kind of learn from that and what y'all are doing. Um, because that's that's the inspirational thing is that it doesn't have to be this way. Um, yes, you know, uh, it is what it is, what we're dealing with. But that's a product of decisions made by human beings. That's a product of a system that we're all part of and and exploited by so you know i just i really appreciate um you coming on the show and sharing a little bit of perspective um and all that you and the rest of your sisters and brothers do in the education movement to kind of pave the way for a lot of us uh in places that need to catch up yeah kenzo anything else that you wanted to add before you uh head out well, yeah, a couple things. One is, um, and th- thank you for that. Um, when we first formed the caucus rank and file educators, it, the, the intent wasn't to take over union, the union bureaucracy. You know, that was something we eventually over some time of organizing realized that was really the only option we had. What we wanted to do was stop the Renaissance 2010 program, which was a program that Mayor Richard Daly put in place that had a goal of, you know, they, they had a good veneer to it where it was like, well, we're going to open up a hundred new um, small schools throughout the, uh, the city. 
what they didn't tell you is the the devil was in the details there was these were going to be they're chopping they basically would take a school building turn it into three schools three small schools in there which host of problems there it's like three different schools Mm -hmm. sharing a gym you had three sets of administrators making six figures that came out of school budgets but most importantly was two-thirds of those schools were going to be non-union a charter school, there'd be a regular CPS school with union teachers, and then these experimental schools that some of them had unions and some of them weren't in the CTU. And it was, you know, it was a Trojan horse for union busting. And we just saw the impacts on our students when schools would close and they'd reopen them. A lot of times the neighborhood kids weren't allowed back into their neighborhood schools because of that. They would have to cross gang lines to go to other schools and kids were getting you know, uh, Darian Albert got murdered um, because of mm. a lack of people in his building who understood the neighborhood um, because of the 2010 program. So we wanted to put an end to this. And, you know, first we hooked up with a lot of community groups and then we decided to become union delegates. So we would go to the House of Delegates meetings where all of the union reps would come together and we'd talk about system-wide issues. When we saw that the union bureaucracy at the time, which was very much in the the hand of uh, Mayor Daly, we had to take over the union. We had to not take over the union as, you know, us 12 people, but we had to organize. We had to have, you know, an invigorated membership. So the union wasn't just going to be us 12 people. It was going to be 30,000 people who felt like, you know, they had a real voice in moving things forward. And so, you know, that is where it came from. And, This kind of dovetails into what I wanted to say about, you know, how all communities are different. You know, I don't want to paint all rural districts as being one way either. When I was working throughout the state, I, um, you know, work with vastly different systems. One one thing that is in common, though, is that the neoliberal school manager model is being exported everywhere. Mm -hmm. So you're having these administrators, these superintendents, these principals for years in these small rural districts used to be able to sit across the table from the union president, shake hands and say, okay, let's figure out what the schools need. They are being replaced by people from not from outside of these communities being shipped down there. And a lot of times when I would go and work in the, the smaller districts, they would be really worried. They're like, we can't do what you did in Chicago. We can't just hammer our, our superintendent the way you did. And then, you know, I'd say, well, let's take a step back. The only reason why we use the tools and the strategies and the messaging we did in Chicago was because Chicago is Chicago. We can't even import that Mm. and take that over to, you know, we can't just pack that up and take that to LA or New York either. You know, those are very Mm. different political systems. So I would always step back when I was talking to the workers in in those districts and, and, you know, ask them questions, which is really the root of organizing is just figuring out, you know, what's the political landscape here? And it wasn't me going to their media because, you know, me with this thick Chicago accent going down to Carbondale, I look like a hustler. So I'm just like, Mm. okay, who who's a good spokesperson for the union? It might not be the president. It might be someone else. But the president's going to help with the messaging to make sure that what's happening at the table is being portrayed correctly in the media. And, you know, it really is it, it takes those relationships and an ability not just to negotiate with the boss, but to negotiate with each other. Yeah. Um, we we had somebody in in the chat ask about uh, what the city's response has been to the specific demands from the CTU. Well, um, they 
it's been a lot of flat out no's. I mean, there's been some progress at the table, but as far as, you know, their ability to um, demonstrate that through messaging, that there is actually progress being made, they're just repeating the message that, you know, we're trying to strike, that uh, this is about, you know, um, bullying the mayor. So it, the even though there there is progress at the table, um, they aren't responding publicly um, like we're, you know, working together. They're responding publicly very much like, um, you know, this is just a nasty fight. So that impacts the table, though. You know, when when um, it comes down to like what we can what we're pushing, the expectations we're trying to push. Um, so, yeah, I would say it's it's a lot of more of the same repeating from, you know, the 2019 strike to, you know, all of the smaller campaigns we had about safe reopening of schools. And the mayor doesn't seem to be learning. And, you know, her um, her administrators don't really seem to understand how to work with us. Um, Because it does take some adjustment on their part as well. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I know uh, on the way here, I was listening to a couple of your CTU sisters interviewed by Max Alvarez on the Working People podcast. And, you know, one of the things that's discussed there is them just not even coming to the bargaining table. I mean, it's not, you know, I think you made this point earlier, but it's not as if the Chicago Teachers Union decided this week, Okay, well, this week we're going to start asking for all this stuff and we'll we'll stay home if that doesn't work. No, I mean, y'all have been pushing uh, since before Christmas break to address many of these issues and to get it resolved so it didn't come to this point. And so that's why I think there's this uh, discrepancy, you know, in the public narrative and the media narrative um, of even what this is. Is it a lockout or is it a, you know, a, mm-hmm. an illegal strike? I think is mm-hmm. how the city is framing it. Uh, it's like Groundhog Day every time something happens. <laughs> like we're repeating again to the media, like, and, and, and to the public, um, you know, through other channels, like this is what a lockout is. This is what a strike is. We are not on strike. We are insisting that we want to work, but we want to have those working conditions being responsive to the actual state of emergency that we're in right now. And right. strike would be with us withholding our labor. A lockout is when the boss says, no, we're not taking your labor right now. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a very important distinction. And I think um, it is not, you know, radical for workers to organize in response to their context and in response to the real life conditions around them to try to address those. Um, And I I think part of the reason why you get Groundhog Day from Lori and and her media, you know, allies is because of what we just said earlier, that Chicago is such a leader for the labor movement. And if if y'all are doing such good work uh, and paving the way for others to possibly follow in your footsteps, you must be disciplined. Mm-hmm. And so I imagine that Mayor Lightfoot has some pressure on her to mm-hmm. continually uh, wield the stick and try to, you know, crush the union, even if it's just simply in, in the PR war, mm-hmm. uh, so that other locals don't get any bright ideas and say, hey, maybe we should try to have safe schools, too. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, that that's I think you hit the nail on the head. You look at. Mayor Lori Lightfoot is an extremely unpopular mayor. 
she came in um, elected somewhat on a fluke because she was, you know, we had this very crowded field of candidates, all with tons and tons of baggage, you know, nasty political Chicago corruption baggage. And she was the only person that didn't have any of that because she's never been a leader before. She's a corporate lawyer. And, you know, she kind of uh, checked off a lot of the, you know, identity politics um, checklist, however, never really working in those communities that, you know, she identifies as. And so she she kind of eked her way in there and she came in fairly popular just because she was not unpopular. She could have really wielded that power for good. And she probably would be the most popular mayor uh, in recent history. Like, in fact, everything she campaigned on, smaller class sizes, more professional, uh, more clinicians in the schools like social workers, those are all things we had to fight for at the negotiating table because she uh, she went back on all those promises. She could have had the city in the palm of her hands if she didn't try to fight the workers and, you know, any kind of common sense policy tooth and nail. And, you know, I think that she is at this point really taking it on for the neoliberal model right now. Like you said, like there's a lot of pressure on her to keep, you know, this model here where, you know, a mayor is an administrator who fights the workers and um, doesn't actually respond or have any part in the communities that she serves. And she's struggling, hopefully, um, because I think there's a mandate there for a new mayor in 2023. Um, We have someone come forward um, who we can all get behind. Someone, you know, I'm aspirational for the next Harold Washington, who was the last progressive mayor we had, who unfortunately died in office. And then uh, the Daly administration came in and started their, you know, neoliberalization of the city. Yep. Jacob, there's something, uh, there was a comment mentioned in the YouTube chat that I, I wanted to respond to, because I think it's a very valid concern. Um, we had someone say, using Chicago as a model for us locally to become more militant will only drive uh, increases in private school attendance. Mm. I, I guess, in other words, um you know, it may alienate folks. And I think there's a valid concern there, but uh, I think you already kind of addressed that a little bit, Kenzo, by saying that every community is different. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so I don't think any of us would expect if you're a teacher in Birmingham or Huntsville or Montgomery County, Limestone County, that you should just do whatever Chicago's doing and, and that'll work. Or that you should do what Chicago is doing or try to do what Chicago is doing right now more than yes. a decade after intense uh, uh, workplace and community organizing. Yeah, I think know. that's that's the real thing there is it's not so much that we just sort of copy and paste from whatever, you know, mm-hmm. y'all are doing as leaders, but to learn from how did you get to this point? Mm-hmm. How did you get to this point where you had enough power? Right. To yeah, it's not engage about, in these fights, not just this pick these fights because that's what they're doing. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, it's not about like how necessary. It's about how do we build power and and then locally, 
the the people who 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 need to make those decisions can make those decisions about how to use it. But the yeah. fact is that uh, teachers in ninety percent of the country do not have the power that Chicago teachers do, and they need the power that Chicago teachers do. And how they use that power is and should be up to them. And maybe they don't use it in in exactly the same ways. But also, this is a pretty unique time, and like they have had. Uh, and even still, I think the community is in large part on your side. And in their other strikes, the community was uh, was overwhelmingly on the side of the Chicago teachers. And that wasn't because uh, communities are naturally on the side of teachers when they engage in fights with their public school systems. But it was because of the the organizing that they did with parents to make sure that they understood that, look, you know, my working conditions as a teacher is the learning conditions of your child. And that's why we're fighting for the things that we're fighting for. And that's why, you know, uh, the Chicago teachers pushed other things just as hard or harder as they pushed salaries like, you know, nurses and, and things like that. And I think that that's something that communities in every uh, people in every community can get behind, like smaller classroom sizes and more nurses per capita and and more things to make the learning experience of their child better. I don't think that that is something that's going to increase private school attendance. I think that that's something that's going to make uh, uh, communities and parents more sympathetic to the teachers because they see that they're fighting for their children and more antagonistic towards the people that are keeping those things from their children. And, you know, it's called struggle for a reason. You know, yeah. not yeah. just we're not just struggling <laughs> when we're on strike either. You know, we right. took over the teachers union in 2010. And, you know, we had 2012 was a hard strike where it was a lot of us building our ability to fight future fights. So we did get some really good things out of that contract that improved schools. But, um, you know, that was definitely not the be all end all. And what we were met with a year later, 2013, Rahm Emanuel closed 50 schools in black and brown neighborhoods. Now we fought that tooth and nail. We did nonstop marching for three days um, throughout all these communities. We, we talked to everyone we could, but the thing was, is that because of that law that I was referring to earlier, where the mayor has total jurisdiction over the schools, he had total authority to do that. He might not have had, mm-hmm. you know, power on his side. He might not have had, you know, the people on his side, but he could always just make an irrational decision, you know, unveil a media campaign to support it and then move on to the next thing. It's very much the DC way of doing things, which is, you know, where he really made his bones And so at that point, you know, that was a huge setback for us, but we knew we were on the right side of history, which isn't just something you feel in your heart. It's something you have to remind people because after 2013, we saw increased violence in the schools. We saw, you know, people leaving the district, you know, leaving the city because their local school was uh, closed and they didn't want to have to, you know, work through the labyrinth of CPS to find a, you know, an improved school for their kid. And, you know, we had to remind people that we're, we, we were fighting then to stop this from happening. This was Rahm Emanuel's decision completely, and he needs to take the blame for it. And that, and then, you know, working with uh, criminal justice, you know, abolitionist groups too, we whittled away Rahm Emanuel's uh, approval rating over time and then he was left no choice but to not run for re-election, which he was planning on being mayor for life, basically, up until that point. And, you know, connecting all these struggles together was a big thing. But, 
in the interim, you know, schools closed, people lost jobs, people died, people got sick, people had mental breakdowns. Like, it's not something that you're going to connect A to B very quickly to. A lot of it is just, you know, not just staying organized, but continue the organizing and stick to your values. And, you know, over time, you're going to win some of the fights, you're going to lose some of the fights, got to take the losses as both education and public education, like I was saying earlier, teaching people like, sure, we lost the fight in 2013 to keep those 50 schools open, but the ripples, the effects of that are still going on. And we're fighting the effects right now. And the only way we can do that is if we increase our numbers. And that doesn't mean just more people signing a union card, but more people committing to action in their union. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a really important point and not to be discouraging, but even if every school district in the state of Alabama had a local as you know vibrant and as militant as CTU, uh, led by CORE, we still would have problems. And in fact, we would, may even have some new problems because mm-hmm. uh, you know the more we push back as workers, the more capital tends to push back on us. Uh, so you know it's it's not as easy as just we flip the switch and okay now we have a strong union now we're we're not gonna have to deal with these problems as much. Uh, it is an ongoing fight, uh, which I think that's why what you said about adding to our numbers uh, because you know it's exhausting and and folks will need to take a break and you need your next sister or brother to step in your place and keep you know uh, be able to pass that torch and keep that fight alive. Mm. Uh, so I think that's, that's very important. And, and, uh, and the other issue there that you, you mentioned in terms of connecting the dots uh, and connecting all these issues that happen outside of school for the most part, but have such a dramatic impact on what happens inside of school. Um, you know, and criminal justice is a good example. Yes, we have students who are incarcerated because of school uh, or at school. Uh, But we know that it is a much broader issue. And we as educators, frankly, you know, if if we are going to be responsible for fixing every problem in the country, which is sort of the situation we're in, like it or not, uh, then we also have a responsibility to try to lead on, on that front. And that's where, you know, speaking to my educators here in Alabama, we need to be out front demanding Medicaid expansion. We need to be out front demanding uh, an end to this just extremely brutal, racist over-incarceration problem we have. Uh, and, and on and on and on. And, and I think um, that's where I have seen you know, progress in places like Chicago or L.A. Uh, pointing towards the common good in how our struggles are connected. Um, that's very taboo here in Alabama. Um, curled up in the fetal position, I think, would probably be a generous way to describe, um, you know, our education community to some degree. But, you know, I, I get that, as that comment on YouTube illustrated, there is a very legitimate fear of pushback and, and alienation and maybe getting out too far ahead of your membership, uh, to say nothing of the broader community. But at the same time, you know, we, we have a responsibility, I think, to advocate for what is best for all of us. Um, and as educators, we know full well the ways in which poverty, inequality, criminal injustice, we know how these issues are impacting our students and our families. And so there's opportunity and responsibility there to 
try to make progress, uh, even if it is just one conversation at a time. Yeah. Kenzo, uh, thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. Oh, no worries. Thank you so much for the platform. It's good to get out the truth. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. We'd love Kenzo. to hear from you. Um, so, yeah, thanks, everybody, for sticking around. Our phone number is 844-899-8857 if you want to leave us a voicemail about the show and let us know what you thought. Uh, we would appreciate that, and we might play it on the show next week. Um, and you can also text us there as well. So, uh, yeah, Adam, uh, anything else you wanted to say before we wrap up? No, I think that's it. I just want to thank everyone who has been listening. I know there's been a pretty robust uh, dialogue in the YouTube chat, uh, which yeah. is really cool. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's part of why we do this is uh, so that we all can learn. And um, hopefully there was some learning happening today. There was some dialogue happening. So that's cool. That's what it's all about. So uh, yeah, th- yeah, thanks I- to everyone who's been listening and commenting and just thinking about mm-hmm. these questions. And uh, we appreciate your support. Yep. All right. Uh, and yeah, speaking of support, just a reminder, uh, our listeners are the single largest source of revenue for the show. We have to, we are on commercial radio stations across North Alabama, and we have to pay to be on the radio. And our single largest source of revenue is from our listeners. So your support really does help. Uh, you can become a monthly donor on unionly, unionly, uh, dot IO slash O slash TVLR, unionly.io slash O slash TVLR, or patreon.com slash the Valley Labor Report. Uh, thanks everybody for listening, and we will see you next week. On oh, next week, we've got a really good show. Um, we're going to be talking to the ACLU, the SPLC, and Alabama Arise about the legislative session that is starting on Tuesday. Buckle up. Buckle up. The legislators are going to Montgomery, so we... we, (laughs) You just never know what might come from that. Yeah, so we're going to be seeing what the hell is going to be going on. Um, ACLU, SPLC, and Alabama Arise are going to be talking to us about the legislative session. And so, yeah, we will see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye. The Valley Labor Report with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison.